Tonight we are going to start a small series here that is going to be dealing with Jewish history and how that applies to Christianity in the church today. Why should we care? And so really the history of Israel and why it matters to understand the Bible in life. That's the title that will not fit on my file for this series, I guess. Um, but anyway, as we talk about history, I just want to see something here. Okay. As we talk about history, you need to understand a couple of things. We all have a worldview. I talk about it all the time when it comes to creation and evolution that we see the world differently based upon our upbringing, our culture, our, our presuppositions. And history is no different. As a matter of fact, if you go over and you look at the history books in Russia, or if they come over here and look at the history books, we would get a complete different story. All because of our upbringing cultures, and in some cases propaganda of what I think both sides want us to believe. I know that I grew up in a very sheltered environment thinking that America always told the truth and the Russians always did propaganda. I've since grown up a little bit and have realized we really are no better. We have had all kinds of things that have gone through our histories in our governments, uh, those in power who have done some awful things. So really the only way to keep truth in focus is to make sure that our worldview is a godly one based on the Bible and his word. Anytime we go outside of that, we can get off track. I see people in the church even that are Christians, but because they have let the Bible's worldview slide a little bit, that they actually believe things in science that are go against God's word. Because it's all they've known. It's what they were taught. It's what they hear time and time and time again. You know, I give examples of the sun. Everybody thinks the sun is a star. <clears throat> well, that, not, not really. The sun can't be a star. The Bible says God made the sun. He made the moon. He also made the stars. He separates those things. As a matter of fact, he has different purposes for each of them. The sun, the greater light to rule the day. The moon, the lesser light to rule the night. The stars for signs, times, and seasons that we see he used for signs, times, and seasons throughout Scripture. Especially the star of Bethlehem. I mean, I could give you example upon example of things that Christians believe because it's just what we've been told, but it doesn't line up with Scripture. <clears throat> I hope that this series is going to help you understand that there are things even in Christianity that we have accepted and allowed to come into the church that really don't have any biblical basis. Might be fine, it might be you know something we've grown up with, a fun tradition, whatever it might be, but it doesn't line up with Scripture. My goal in my life is to try and line up as much as humanly possible with everything God's Word says. And I remember, I don't know, 20 years ago, just thinking, I am done 
you know, I grew up in a certain church and then you go to this other church and you think, oh, they've got all the answers. And then, then you think that the church you grew up in, well, there were some good things, but you know, for the most part, they're idiots. And then you go to, and then you find out a little bit more that the church you're going to, they're filled with idiots too. And so then you go to another one and then you realize, wait a minute, maybe I'm the idiot. <laughs> Everywhere you go and it's like, stop, I'm tired of this. I'm so tired of, of thinking I've got the answers and then realizing I don't have the answers. And then realizing that it was because it wasn't all based on the word. So much of it, just what I grew up with or whatever. And so the word needs to be the center. And so a God-centered view of history is what's going to give you an understanding of history outside of what Russia might say or what the United States might say or anybody else. And it's going to give you a better understanding of your purpose on earth, the purpose of the kingdom of God. And I think it's going to give you an understanding of why Christianity in general believes and teaches the things that they do that may not line up fully with Scripture. So history is very important, and that's why I feel it's important to go through this. So this is going to be a little different. We're not going through one book of the Bible, verse by verse, as we've done in the past. This time we're going to go through history year by year, leading us all the way up to the time of the Holocaust. Now, obviously we don't, since I said this was a short series, <laughs> we're not going to be able to hit everything, but we're going to hit the highlights. We know that I keep saying the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, but the Bible's writings ended around 100 AD. Some might even go a little less than that. Which begs the question, how do we know in modern history what's biblical and what's not? Well, I think you have, if you have the foundation, you will be able to see the same thing has followed through since Christ came 2,000 years ago. Begs the question, is God still involved in our history then? I think we all would say, oh, well, absolutely. But the question is, how then do we align our lives with that history, with God's calling, with his plan? It's going to help you to know what we should be praying for, what we should be striving for. And so, like I said, that's why this is important. You know, Deuteronomy 31 says this, and I'm going to read this just because I think that it's kind of an important distinction that we need to make here as well before we get started. It says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Daniel Joseph talked about this verse today, and he said, we, we hear this all the time, even as Christians. How many times do we say, God will never leave you, he will never forsake you? It's what scripture says a number of times. He will not leave you, period. You can bank on it. But then we read on in verse 16, and it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. In other words, take upon their culture, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. Whoa, what? God just told you, I will never forsake you. 
Never means never. I'll never forsake you. And now he says, but I'm going to forsake you. Some might call that a contradiction. But it's not. What we see throughout history, what we see throughout Scripture, is that there's always an if to God's promises. Yeshua Jesus did not die on the cross for just everybody because he's a God of love, and so everybody is going to get to heaven. There's an if involved for that blood to cover your sins. Here we see what happened is that the people of Israel forsake God. And once they forsake God, then God will forsake them. But not until then. You see, this promise that God is never going to leave or forsake you has an if, if you remain faithful. Every covenant that God made always had an if in it. There was always something that God asked of you in order for what he has promised to you to remain. Hebrews, for it is impossible for those who have once tasted the goodness of the word of God and shared in the Holy Spirit, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. But wait, I thought that you're always good. That's not what this is saying at all. This is saying that there is an if. Now, again, I am not preaching works righteousness, works salvation. You can't, this isn't that you have to be perfect and without sin in order to not have God forsake you. Well, kind of is, but not with your ability. It is God's blood, Jesus' blood, that makes you sinless. You could never be good enough. You can't keep the commandments. You can't do any of it to be good enough in order to earn the righteousness that God gives. So it's not works righteousness, but it is one of these things that says this. Jesus in the New Testament, over and over, if you love me, if, and you will do what I say. The man who says he loves me but hates his brother deceived himself. He doesn't love me. If you love him, there will be a response to the gospel in your life. And if there is not a response to the gospel in your life, you have lied to yourself and you do not know God, you do not love God. Pretty simple. Your response doesn't save you. Your response is simply an evidence that you know the God who saves you. That you care and love for the God who saves you. So we can think of many examples of those who seem to walk with God and then forsake him and then God forsakes them. Whether it be Gehazi or Achan, Achan's sin, and, you know, many others in the, in the Old Testament. Maybe even in the New as well. We see um, Paul talking about, um, was it wasn't Demetrius, who's the one that, you know, Paul just, you could tell he had a little caution about him. And then he says that this guy has, has abandoned us because he loved the world. But anyway, 
the Jews are God's covenant people. There is no question about that. I don't care what your theology says. It's what the scriptures say. The Jews are God's covenant people. Nowhere have they been replaced by the church. You can't show me a scripture that'll say that. Nowhere does it say that God has rejected the Jews and will never be faithful to his promises. As a matter of fact, we see patterns, even Moses. He says, God, don't wipe these people out because if you do, the nations are going to hear about it. It's not them that look bad. It's you that looks bad because they're going to say that God was not strong enough to bring about the salvation and the redemption that you had promised them. And yet today we have people saying, oh, God has rejected the Jew. He's done with them. What, God wasn't strong enough, faithful enough, powerful enough, loving enough to keep his promise? That's what scripture says. I believe as we have taught, you know, going through, as we went through the book of Galatians or when we went through the book of Hebrews, that I have been grafted in to the Jewish family. I am a child of Abraham. I don't think I have any, you know, Jewish dinner in me, okay? But I have been grafted in, adopted as sons. I now share in the same nourishing sap from the olive vine, as Romans tells us. I have become a child of Abraham through faith. All of these things that scripture say. And so I want you to know as we go through this, this history of God's faithfulness to the Jew, that this is applying to you. I hear many things, well, I don't know, you know, in the Old Testament, that was talking about the Israelites, so it doesn't apply to you. No. You see how that, our, our understanding of this can affect how we even understand scripture and God's faithfulness and his promises? If those promises were only for the Jew, not to you, then where does that leave you? But if you have been grafted in, then these promises are yours as well. You see, history is going to flow from the nature of the very covenant that God gave to his people. That if kind of thing. If you honor the Sabbath, if you follow my commands, if you do this, I will not forsake you, is what we see over and over throughout Scripture. And so that nature of the covenant flowed from the response of the people. And throughout history, you're going to see that the Jews, for the most part, did try to follow that. They fell away, and they'd be brought back, and they'd fall away, and they'd be brought back, but they honored the Sabbath. For the most part, they were a separate people. They dressed differently. They ate differently. They, they looked different. They talked different. They were separate. Just as 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, be ye separate. Be ye holy. The other thing that you need to understand before we go through this is that there is two different definitions of a Jew. You can have an ethnos or a culture that dictates their history. A culture means nothing. And unfortunately, I see many today who seem to understand biblical truth that they try to 
somehow be a part of God's covenant by living out the culture of a Jew. We need to make sure that, oh, well, I, I get into this, so I need to learn Hebrew, and, and I need to you know, start wearing a Jewish cross, and, and I need to put the mezuzah up on the, the wall before I go into the house, or I need to wear my tzitzits, or you know, whatever the case might be. Do, do the Jewish dance as we're singing you know, praises God, you know, to God, whatever. I'm not saying any of those are bad things. I'm not even saying you can't do those things, but let me tell you, none of that makes you part of the culture or I should say the covenant of God. Okay, the tzitzit thing is mentioned in Scripture, and you could maybe say the mezuzah, but again, God's Word didn't say it that way. They kind of applied what God's Word said and made it into that. These little things you touch before you go into a doorway and say a prayer. So, the culture that dictates the history of the Jew is different than the covenant that dictates them being a Jew. And so you need to make that distinction. The covenant aspect is absolutely distinct for the Jew. And we will see that throughout history. So just keep that in mind. When I talk about Jews today or throughout this series, I'm going to be talking about covenantal Jews, not cultural Jews, not those that look the part, dress the part, because, you know, I see some walking down the streets in Hastings sometimes. They are all decked out in their Jewish garb, but I believe Jesus would say, you are not a Jew. A Jew is not one who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, who has had their hearts circumcised. Yeshua is at John 8 or 9 where he, he goes and he even says to the Pharisees, he says, you are not children of Abraham, you are children of your father, the devil. These had the DNA, the dinna of a Jew. And he says, you're not a Jew. They were Jew in ethnos only. Because if you do not forsake me, I will not forsake you. These people have rejected Yeshua as their Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't be brought back in, that they can't repent, that they can't be a part of that covenant. But it's so important to make that distinction because I think when we hear the word Jew, we automatically go to those that look like it by the way they dress, by the words that they say, the food that they eat or don't eat, and so on. That is not the biblical definition of a Jew. It's very different. The other thing that's interesting is that you're going to see the Jews are the most persecuted of all nations, any culture throughout all of history. And I think it is both because of the covenant and the culture. You see, we blend in typically so that you're not persecuted. They never blended in. They were always different. That will bring persecution. And the second thing is the covenant because, well, God is faithful to his promises. Satan knows that. 
And so Satan is doing everything he can to destroy that covenant. And the best way to do it, since he can't touch God, is to touch those that the covenant is for and get them to forsake the covenant. It's the exact same thing that the devil did with Balaam. Do you remember Balaam and the talking donkey? Balaam could not curse Israel, could not do it, could not do it, goes away empty-handed. And so he goes back to the king of Moab and says, I can't curse them, but if you want them to get cursed, here's what you do. You get them to curse themselves by forsaking the covenant. You go get their pretty women and you come and get them to be unfaithful. Then they will bring curses upon themselves. That's exactly what happened. That's how the devil works. He wants to make sure that the people will not be faithful to the covenant so that God, by his own laws, cannot be faithful to his covenant. I, shouldn't, I don't like the way I said that. But that God will forsake them. God will always be faithful to his promises. So there are 10 things that you're going to see throughout this study that you're going to have these questions answered. Number one, why are so many uh, Jews successful in business? Even ethnos Jews, cultural Jews, because they are. I don't know if you realize that or not, but they are very successful. Why is education so important to a Jew? Because it is. Almost all of our Nobel Peace Prizes have been from Jewish people. Even Mossad and all of their military. America looks to them as the example of like Secret Service stuff. We look to them for technologies and all kinds of things. It's crazy. Why are most of them good with money? Why are most Jews viewed as stingy? Why are Jews tough negotiators? Why are they often aggressive and argumentative? Because they are. Why do they have strong families? Why are their closest friends Jews? Why do they resist the gospel? And why are most very liberal? Okay, these are some stereotypes of Jewish people that hold true today. And I think understanding history is going to help you understand every one of those questions. We're going to start out, we could go all the way back to Adam, creation, but we're going to kind of start more with a covenant. God made a covenant with Adam, and then Adam and Eve, they're going to have Cain and Abel, right? Well, Abel, it seemed to be where maybe things were supposed to go. He was a righteous man. Cain was not, so Cain kills Abel. And so then we have Shem come along, or uh, Seth, and Seth kind of replaces Abel. And we know that it is through Seth that this promise and God's plan is going to follow through. Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. We don't know what their names are. The Bible says, I think it's Genesis 5, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. We just don't know their names because it doesn't matter. What God is trying to do in Scripture is show you history. Follow the line all the way up to Jesus. Because he is the reason for the scriptures. Well, Seth is that line that it's going to follow. And we're going to get all the way up, you know, to Methuselah, to, to Noah, ultimately. 
We get to Noah there, and Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis 9, it says of one of his sons, Shem, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now that's interesting because we hear the God of Abraham. The God of Abraham and Isaac. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the God of Israel. But even before that, we have the God of Shem. We're seeing that there was a line that is being followed here. And it is pointing us to Shem, not Ham, not Japheth. And historically, it is fascinating that you're going to see that very thing, the blessings that go through that line. Shem becomes the father of the, basically the Semites, Jews, as well as others we're going to see, the Arabs. Now, by the way, Shem simply means name uh, in in. Judaism today even, they'll call the Hashem. Hashem, the name. Ha is the Shem, name, the name. Yahweh is Hashem. And so they don't say the word Yahweh because they believe that that's too holy to have pronounced off of unholy lips. And so they will often say Hashem in replace of Yahweh. And yet it's taking us all the way back to this promise to Shem. So, we may think of everything starting with Abraham, but it doesn't. It starts with Adam, to Seth, to Shem, to Noah, to Abraham, and as it follows down the line. Now, Genesis 10, verse 6, it tells us about these three sons of Abraham, or not Abraham, but Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We see uh, the sons of Ham become Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. When I went through the history of Egypt, I told you that Mizraim is still to this day the Hebrew word for Egypt. And you can go to Egypt and see the Bank of Miser and all of these things. It's just the word for Egypt. We know that the Egyptians came from Ham. Violence, okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, good point. So, and, and Hamas is an Arab thing, which we're going to get into. The descendants of Ham will be Arabs. Yeah, I probably won't, just because, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's a good good clarification that it's Ham, yeah. Um. Japheth is going to go to Europe and Central Asia. So I've got them kind of color-coded, at least for the yellow here. You can see where they go. Now, we can trace this simply by the names of them. You know, Cush, we, we know the land of Cush, what that is historically and so on. Uh, it goes down to Egypt and so on, up into Turkey. Um, Ethiopia, Libya, they become the Canaanites. Um, Mizraim is not just the Egyptians, but they become the father of the Philistines as well. Uh, now, I'm not going to go, I'm going to go through this quickly just to kind of give you an idea of where these people are. I mentioned here a week or two ago, one of the things that we put in our museum is some information on a book called Trace, the newest genetic information out there from creation research. And I don't know how well you can see it, but bottom line is 
genetically, we have traced the Y chromosome, and they have been able to trace the Y chromosome all the way back to a single person, to Noah, about 4,500 years ago. Now, why not to Adam? Well, because at Noah, it, you can only trace the Y through the male. And so because of that, it's going to stop 4,500 years ago. And that's exactly what genetics shows us. So it's amazing stuff. We can also see, because of all of these genetic programs that are out there, whatever you'd call them, you know, like, uh, what are they? The gene things. Yeah. Yeah. Ancestry.com, that kind of thing. We've got all this information. Through this, they have been able to trace and be able to say, really, I would say almost proof positive where all of these people went after the flood, just from their genetics. And it lines up with what their names would say, too. And so you can kind of see where you would come from if you know, basically, your heritage for the most part. Okay? So I'm not going to, like I said, go through all of that outside of it's just an interesting thing to see that science and history are lining up as well. Um, Nathaniel Jensen. Yeah. So another thing before we get too far into it, tonight's we're going to lay some foundations, but um, who's entitled to the land of Israel? We talked a few weeks ago about this when we went through Israel and what's going on there in the war, but the argument is that the Palestinians came from the Philistines, and we said that's not true. And afterwards, we figured out for sure we know where the word Palestinians came from. It was from the Romans in 70 AD when they had conquered Jerusalem to kind of another slap in the face. They, they gave it the name to ridicule and mock them by naming it after the place of their enemies, the Philistines. And so it became known as the Pal Palestinians from the Romans. Okay, Palestinia. And um, the very fact that, that we know that this is historically a fact tells us that the Palestinians are not Philistines because the Palestinians are Arabs that came from Shem, same place the Jews came from. They are Semites, not Philistines who are come from Egypt, the Mizraim, or Ham. So they are not from the Philistines, not only by the history of the name proving that and where the name Palestine came from, but also from just the Bible and us seeing where they come from. The Arabs come from Shem. The Jews come from Shem. So they're brothers. Interesting that that's the pattern we see all through Scripture whether it be um, Jacob and Esau, Hagar and Ishmael, this fight among the brothers and the promise that that is what was going to happen. Right? Anyway, um, the Philistines just don't exist anymore. In Genesis 10, 21, we see that Shem, the ancestor, is uh, he's the, the father of Eber, Eber is where we get this word Hebrew from. So sometimes we can use that word Jew in Hebrew synonymously. Eber simply means 
in Hebrew to cross over. And we have found in archaeology writings from the Babylonians that talk about the Habayrus, the Hebrews. And this Habayru of the Babylonian records talk about them being nomadic peoples that were very sophisticated and headed up by one person, one man. Well, we know that to be Abraham. In Genesis 14, 13, this is one of the first times we see the word Hebrew used. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. In Hebrew, it, 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 it's Abri, from which is very close to Abraham, Abraham. And this is the first time that we see it being used. But I find that interesting because as believers in Christ, we are grafted in to the Hebrew, Eber. We cross over from death to life in Yeshua. They crossed over from death to life in following the covenant. Because God calls Abraham out of Ur and he crosses over the river. He crosses over into the promised land to receive life. So we know that Abraham, we talked about this when we were going through a little bit on Israel, we see the fertile crescent and how the, the path that when God calls Abraham, where he goes, goes up over, you know, from Haran and then down into the promised land. Um, we also talked about, so I'm going to go through it quickly, if you've ever been to Israel, you go, why Israel? Why that land? Because Iowa has much better soil. And so either God hates Iowa just like my son does, or he had a different reason. And I know it was a different reason. And as we said here a few weeks back, it was because he had a purpose for those he called. And that purpose was to be a light to the world. Because of the way the land was, you couldn't go across. To, you had to go up and around the Fertile Crescent. So anybody from up here in the world to go down here in the world, you all had to go through Israel. You had to go through it and hear about the God of all creation, Elohim, the God of Abraham, Yahweh, Everybody knew about the Jews because they're the bridge to get from one side to the other. And that is going to be very important to recognize that God placed them, called them, told them to go to this spot because he had a plan. He had a purpose. He had a reason which would tend to make me think that God has called you for that same purpose, that same plan. I also find it interesting that he crosses over the Euphrates, and it basically all begins in the Euphrates, and it's going to end in the Euphrates. Remember when we went through the book of Revelation, that very short series? <laughs> verse by verse, and we talked about the frogs coming up out of the Euphrates and how the Euphrates is going to dry up and all of these things. 
It begins and it ends. God is bringing it full circle. Calling them out, crossing over, and going to end it there too. So what does it mean to be chosen? In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord had said to Abraham, or Abram at that time, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Isn't that interesting? It isn't, hey, go over to this land because you are just like so amazing. You have been so godly and, and standing upright, you know, being faithful to the God of Noah. And, and you know, you've really earned this. He calls them and just simply says, I'm going to make you a great nation so that what? So that you could be a blessing to who? All the people on earth. You want to know why God called Abraham? It wasn't because he was so good. It was because he had a purpose and a call or a calling on his life. To be a blessing to the world. That is huge in my book. You know, sometimes I think Christians, we take pride in being God's called. We say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I feel like, especially in America, that when we feel that we are Christians, that we are believers, that we have been grafted in, that once that happens, that means now I'm in this special group of people that deserves all kinds of blessings and honor and, and you know, name it and claim it and the prosperity gospel. I'm going to have the nicest house and the best family, the most well-behaved family, um, you know, the most submissive wife, and I'm going to be, you know, the, the most godly of husbands. And, you know, life is just going to be hunky-dory, right? Because I'm a Christian. This, I know we don't say it, but we have this attitude that we deserve it. When we look at history and God's called and chosen people, I find it pretty fascinating. They are the most persecuted people of all 6,000 years of history. On the play, movie, whatever it is, Fiddler on the Roof. One of the famous lines is, Lord, couldn't you have chosen someone else? Put that in perspective for us today. When God has called you to be His, He has an expectation from you. It is not to live your best life now. He has called you, and we ought to be realizing that being a Christian is hard. It's tough. Oh, I know, I know, you know, he gives bl blessings and life abundantly. But you see, his definition of that and our definition of that, I believe, is different. Life abundantly doesn't mean all the money and possessions. It, it means eternal life and joy. Being a Christian, 
This is why he, Jesus said, you know, when, when somebody goes to, to build a house, he should first consider if he has what it takes to build it. We often look at that as money because the parable goes on and it says, you know, he's going to start building and then he doesn't have enough money to finish it and then he's going to look like a fool. But I think that money is a picture of something else. When God calls you, when you decide, hey, I want to follow the Lord, you need to ask yourself, do I have what it takes to finish this out? Do I have what it takes to stand up for truth when the world is going to make fun of me? They're going to mock me? When the church itself is going to persecute me because I'm going to look different than them. I'm going to worship differently than they do, perhaps. That my own family is going to be divided apart because I don't do the things they do. You see, that is what it means to be a Christian. And it doesn't stop there. You see, you're supposed to do that because just as Abraham was called so that he would be a blessing to the people, to the world, you are called to be different, to be separate, to be persecuted, to be hated, so that you can be a blessing to the world. You know, I look at my own family and I see God's blessings. I see God's blessing. And let me tell you, it has nothing to do with me or my wife. We both suck, let me tell you that, as parents. You just like speak for yourself. No, she, I think she'll agree. It had nothing to do with us, but I can tell you this, because of our love for Jesus and our faithfulness to him, God has been faithful to our family. I see that so clearly in my life and in the lives of others, the faithfulness of God. I've mentioned this before, I've never brought it up on a slide, but the two men, Max Jukes and this other guy that they trace their history of and how many hundreds and thousands of godly people throughout their ancestry versus this murderer and how many, you know, how few and how evil throughout history. We are to be a blessing. And in me standing up for God, and then God raising up one of my children to stand up for God, we are blessing this country, hopefully blessing you. We're going to bless this county. We are called to be a blessing, but we can only be that when we stand up and are separate and are hated and are persecuted. We think that the only way we can be a blessing is if we are accepted and, and lifted up so that people look at us as if we're some great person. Quite the opposite. The people that change history are not those people. Lord, couldn't you have chosen somebody else? Consider the cost of what it means to be a Christian. The promise to be a blessing was, as I said, for everyone on earth to be blessed through them. In other words, as I just said, the function of a Jew being chosen was to bring blessings to the world, to the nations. To bring God's ways and ultimately the gospel to the world. 
in Genesis 15, God gave the promise of the land of Israel. And what's interesting is that throughout history, most Jews have never lived there. There was a time that some did for sure, but uh, most of history, they have not. And yet somehow deep inside them, God has put a desire and a longing for that land. A desire and a longing that we don't have in America for our own country, sadly. At Passover, every year they even say, next year in Jerusalem. Some drive inside them to connect with the land of Israel and God's covenant. And ultimately this will not be fulfilled until the Lord comes back. This is why he's coming back and his feet stand on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Why Mount Zion is the place he calls people to. So it's important to realize this function of a Jew, you, and understand the history of this so that you can live out that calling. That you realize that God called you to be a blessing to those around you. We see examples of this in history right away. God calls Abraham, you are to be a blessing to the nations. So in Genesis 20, what happens? He goes to Egypt and to Sarah, he says, I'm going to give your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover, the, oh, well, Abimelech here first. Um, the blessing here in Abimelech, if you recall, he says to Sarah, just tell him you're my sister because you, know, you are my half sister. So, you know, just tell him that so that they don't kill you. Abraham wasn't walking in faith. He didn't, he didn't even deserve it. And, but God was still faithful to his promises and to his covenant. But he was having a hard time trusting the Lord here. Well, the Lord steps in. And then we see that after Abraham was the one deceiving Abimelech, Abimelech is warned in a dream or whatever, you know, don't touch her. And he says, you lied to me. This is your wife. Why'd you do that? Because I could have slept with her, or my men could have slept with her, and then we would have brought guilt upon ourselves. Now, I love that because I want you to catch something here that's going to be important later. Even the ungodly knew it was wrong to sleep with another man's wife. Even the ungodly knew that. That'll be important later, but... He says to Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his slave girls, so that they could have children again. So here is Abraham, really not the victim. But then Abraham is the one that has all the authority, all the power, and all the blessing to give. That's fascinating. Same thing happens with Jacob and Pharaoh. Pharaoh, king of the world at this time. A world power. And here this little lowly shepherd comes in, and it's that little shepherd that blesses Pharaoh, not Pharaoh blessing that lowly shepherd. You see, they were living out the covenant and the 
the, the call on their life, even there, we see it in the biblical history. To be a blessing to others, living out that covenant. So, as I said, God is known as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, later the God of Israel. He's not called the God of Christians. He's not God called the God. It, it ended right there, the God of Israel. Why? Because from that line, we get Yeshua, Jesus, coming. And from that line, we all are going to be associated with in some way, shape, or form. It stops right there. There's no need for any more covenants to be made. Any more promises. We know that the line of Abraham was split between Ishmael and Isaac. You can kind of see the family tree here. And we know that the Edomites come from Esau. The Edomites being kind of south of the Dead Sea. Uh, Moab and the Ammonites that came from um, Lot on the east side of the Jordan. But when they're coming into the promised land, God says, don't touch the Edomites. Don't destroy them. God protected them even the Ammonites and the Moabites for a while, entering the Promised Land. They come from the same bloodline. And that was one of the reasons God said that, that they're your brothers. But when they rejected God, then God had to bring punishment. God is called the God of Israel 203 times in the Bible. Never once the God of Ishmael. Never once the God of the Americans. It's interesting, Jerusalem is not even mentioned in the Quran, and yet it is the third most holy site for a Muslim. Jerusalem, historically, has been put up on a pedestal in ways that can only be supernaturally explained. But we know that these Jews, for the most part, today if you talk to a Jew, everything is going to go back to the role of Moses and the law that was given. This is what Jews focus on primarily. They see Moses as being a type of a priest, a prophet, and a king. Because the role of Moses was to point us to the law. And the law points us to God. The law isn't a means for you to get to heaven. It's a means to you to understand and know God. To know Him better. To understand His character, His nature. And that's why the law is good. As long as one uses it properly, as Timothy says in the New Testament. So that you may know your God. <clears throat> they call Moses, Moisha Rabbeinu. Rabbi Moses. And... It's kind of interesting because while everything is going to point us back to Mount Sinai, the church almost does everything to point away from Mount Sinai. But the Bible, even in the New Testament, continues to point us to Mount Sinai. Every New Testament author keeps quoting laws that came from Mount Sinai. The church just doesn't realize it because it doesn't say, you know, the first commandment. It just quotes it. It doesn't say the second commandment. It just quotes it. 
you know, maybe a year ago or so, I gave a, a message that talked about showing you every one of the Ten Commandments that I could show you even before the Ten Commandments were given. People will often say you can see all, at least nine of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, but not the Sabbath. I would disagree. You see the Sabbath there too. It just doesn't tell you, thou shalt keep it. We just see them all keeping it. I want to show you this legal system, and I think it's important to dive into that a little bit. Because the Sabbath, as an example, is a good thing, not only so that we have a day so that we're in God's word, but it also serves a practical purpose of, especially in those days, you don't work, you don't eat. You've got lazy people, people are going to die. And this ensured that not only would they have a day of rest, but that they would be working six days out of the week. They would not be lazy gluttons. Moses lived somewhere around 1400 B.C. And the Ten Commandments and the legal system that God gave us interestingly lines up to the legal systems that we see throughout archaeology. And that legal system, as I said, was to connect God and the people. So the very fact that the laws connected us to one another tells us that this isn't some inhumane thing and that he's trying to be some, you know, hard-nosed guy that just wants to ruin all your fun. But these commandments are humane, unique, and good. Very good. 613 laws, all with one purpose. To draw us closer to God and to, to basically live godly. The laws in the Torah for every part, uh, there are parts of it for every part of life. Whether it be family, criminal, civil, inheritance rights, property rights, international laws, commerce laws, agricultural laws. Okay, all to bring a fair and just godly society. That's what it was for. In Exodus 20, it introduces the Ten Commandments. And it tells us why. Because I led you out of Egypt. Because I saved you, because I gave you the Passover lamb, because I brought redemption, because I saved you, now thou shalt, thou shalt not. Same thing in the New Testament. Because I redeemed you, because I am the Passover lamb, because I saved you, now if you love me, you will do what I say. No different. Very humane and still brings a fair and just society. The law has been, always was, and always will be, a result of grace. Deuteronomy, the entire book which we see for the law, is laid out like an ancient covenant of, of, of treaty or peace. This is what would happen when you conquered a land, and we've got archaeological evidences of these. There were these steps. The first thing is an introduction explaining what happened. Okay, You guys rebelled against us, you failed to pay taxes, so here we are, and we kicked your butt. It recites the historical relationship with the people. Okay? Okay, you guys, we, you were to pay taxes because we did this, and you know, you were doing that, and whatever. Stipulations, new requirements and laws. So now that we have kicked your butt, here's what you're supposed to do. We're going to demand this much for taxes. You're no longer able to go here or go there. And if you follow these, we are going to treat you well. We'll give you some provisions here and there. If you disobey them, we're going to come and we're going to probably hang you whatever. And then an oath that says, do you agree? 
in succession. If after this king dies, the next king, here's what you're supposed to do with the next king. And then here it is, the final reading. It was written on two documents. One the people kept and one went back to the, the conquerors. Okay? Look at the book of Deuteronomy. You can go back and look at this later if you want, but look, chapter 1 is an introduction. Chapter 1 through 4 then continues with the relationship between God and the people. Chapters 5 through 26 are the stipulations, the requirements of that law. Chapters 27 and 28, the blessings and curses, whether you keep or, or don't keep those laws. Chapter 31, the succession, what happens when Moses dies. Here comes a new leader, Joshua. Chapter 31 as well continues in the end of the final location of the law. Where is this law going to be kept? And what do we see? That there were ten commandments written on two stones. We often picture these two stones, five on one, five on the other. It probably wasn't that. It was probably all ten on one and all ten on the other. One for God, one for the people. We don't know for sure, but based on what we see, probably a good example of what may have happened. There are three reasons for this universal hatred and persecution of the Jews. Number one, I think they're under God's judgment because you forsake me, I'll forsake you. God warned them, weep, don't weep for me, weep for your children. Okay, destruction is coming upon Jerusalem. You know, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. Secondly, it's inspired of Satan, as I said, because God's integrity is bound up in Israel, just like I said with Moses. That Satan knows if I can get God's covenant with Israel to not, you know, be followed through on, then God's a liar. God can't be God. Third, that... To obey God's covenant, Satan doesn't want them to be able to do that or be even allowed to because to do so means blessings, not only for them, but for the world. And so he would rather them be cursed. So he is going to attack them in every way so that they can't be a blessing to the world. Just like Balaam. Come on. Let them go curse themselves. Send all your men out to get them to curse themselves. Well, I think I'm going to have to stop here. I was really hoping to get about seven more slides in here. but I'm, gonna, I'm going for it, Tara. Sorry. This is important. Who is Israel? I'm going to give you a real quick rundown. I've talked about it before, so I, can go, I think I can go through this quickly. We know the Jews entered the land as 12 tribes. Um, what ends up happening is before there are 12 tribes, there, there are 12 tribes, there are still 12 tribes, but they're all united. They're one. Okay, we had a king, an executive leadership, which was like the military, the building, you might even say like a government. The priests, which were judging and teaching God's word to the people. You might say the priests or pastors. And, and prophets, these religious and social reformers. You might say 
these special people within the church. Something like that, that you had. But bottom line, three distinct roles. Jesus fulfills all of those roles for us. A prophet, a priest, and a king. Around 1050 BC, we see first the 12 tribes, they come into the promised land. Yay, everybody's happy, but there's no leader, so they've got these judges. And they go, you know, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, a cycle constantly. And finally, they say, we want a king. So God says, well, I'm your king, but hey, if you want a king, I'll give you one. But let me tell you, it's not going to work out well for you. So they get Saul. Saul becomes the first king around 1050 BC. And Saul, at first seems like it's going to be a good thing, but pretty much immediately, pride and power keep him from doing what's right. And so you can go read in Scripture, and you see then David is going to become king around 1000 BC. And he becomes a model of kingship, of what really, a model of what the Messiah is supposed to be within, you know, a limitation of him being in flesh, obviously. So um, at that time, Israel was a world power for about 80 years. That's it. The only time. Then Solomon becomes king, and they're still a world power. David kind of cleaned house, so now they had peace and rest and abundance and whatnot. And then Solomon, when he dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king, and Rehoboam's an idiot. And so he listens to his young friends rather than the older wise people. And without going through all the story, ten tribes go off to the north. The other two tribes stick with them, Rehoboam in Jerusalem. And from that point on, the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel became, for the most part, ten tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom, for the most part, became known as the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And so, in our little hand signal thing that some of you kids know, we have that little ditty, North, South, Israel, Judah, 1920, 08, he, Jimmy, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, Elisha, Elijah. And it shows you which kings, which prophets, or at least how many kings. Everything on this side refers to Israel. Everything on that side refers to Judah. In Israel, they were called the Northern Kingdom. They had 19 kings. Zero of those kings followed God. Because of that, he sent prophets, Amos, Hosea, Elijah, and Elisha. Ahe, A-H-E-E. -E. Those prophets told them, shape up or you're going to have to ship out. They didn't ever shape up. So God sent the Assyrians in 722 B.C. to come in and conquer them. And they scattered them throughout the world. That is the history of Israel. To this day. Judah, on the other hand, they were known as the southern kingdom, these two tribes. Well, there did happen to be, when they saw the Assyrians coming, that they said, oh, some of us, we better run. So some ran to Jerusalem and stayed there, but not very many. But that is why when we see that Jesus comes, we see people like Simeon and others from the tribe of Asher. Because there were a few that fled and went to the southern kingdom of Judah. But for the most part, the Jews of, of the New Testament, when you read about them, are all from Benjamin and Judah. The other ten tribes were lost. So then, uh, there were 20 kings. Eight out of that 20 followed God. That was it. Because there was so much ungodliness, God sent them prophets. Jimmy, J-I-M-E, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, and Ezekiel. Those are the main prophets saying the same thing. 
Well, because there was some good in there, it lasted a little longer until about 586 BC, the Babylonians came and captured them, took them to Babylon for 70 years, and then 70 years later, God brought them back to Jerusalem. That's the history of Judah. Now, we will talk more about that later, but what I want you to see tonight is this. When they were split, the 12 tribes were split into the 10 and 2, it weakened them, and they never got the strength that they had ever again. And so around 900 BC, the nations began to attack these 10 tribes, and we had Aram, which is Damascus of today, or today's Syria. Damascus back then, too. But they made an alliance with the 10 northern tribes, and so these 10 tribes were starting to team up, not be separate, not look different, but blend in with the Assyrians, take upon their culture and so on. They became ungodly. And so Assyria is another enemy, um, basically northern Iraq today, and their capital was Nineveh. Now, I think you, if you've read the story of Jonah, you know the story of Nineveh, right? They rose up around 800 B.C. And these countries rising up would eventually overtake, and they're the ones that come in, and conquer those 10 tribes and scatter them throughout the world. That's the history that you need to know. Here is just the Assyrian Empire. You can see that they were a world power through the Fertile Crescent there, all right? Well, um, Aram, the Arameans, uh, again, Syria, Damascus, they allied in the mid 700s, tried to invade Judah. Well, God, they were faithful kings in Judah at that time. So God comes in and, and protects them. And God even says that you 10 tribes, you're going to fall. You have forsaken me. I'm going to forsake you. Isaiah 7, 17, as you can see here, is a prediction of that fall. I'm not going to read it. By 732, Aram or Damascus is destroyed. By 722, Israel is defeated and scattered all by the Assyrians. And as I said, scattered throughout the world. And these people become known as the lost 10 tribes of Israel. The lost tribes. That's going to be important for next week. Okay. Um, Ezekiel 27, though, is interesting because it talks about the restoration of these 12 tribes. I could give you probably 100 verses maybe in the Old Testament and in the New that are going to talk about God wanting and desiring to bring all 12 tribes back again. How can that happen? Well, ultimately, it's a cross that's going to be able to do that. We're going to talk about that later. I'm not going to focus on it tonight. But that is why it is still called the land of Israel to this day, because God is not done with Israel. Even though Israel became known as those northern tribes, Judah is just a little small remnant. So important history. Jonah tells us that when you went through the city of Nineveh, that it took three days to get across it. It was huge. And so what I want to do, I'm going to close out today by showing you Nineveh today and God's faithfulness to his promises here with this. need to hook up my power here for you to get sound, though. This is uh, a video from Expedition Bible, an archaeologist here that's got a lot of good stuff.
This is what Claudius Rich described. The city wall line looks like a long natural hill. And this is where the stone wall in one of the many city gates has been exposed through excavation. This top plan was drawn in the mid-1800s and shows the city walls. This arrow shows the camera angle in the next shot, showing the northeast corner of the city wall. These wall lines enclose the ruins of Nineveh, which can still be seen today. In this way, we can see the massive size of Nineveh, showing that the ruins of Nineveh match the descriptions of the city in the Bible. Jonah chapter 3 says, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Um, bottom line then is here you can see Nineveh again, the Tigris and the Euphrates by it. We have archaeologically excavated portions of Nineveh. They actually found the palace and they found all of these uh, the, the mural telling the story of the fall of Jerusalem, or uh, not Jerusalem, but Lachish. And the Bible lines up with this. In 2 Kings, it talks about how the Sennacherib came up against Jerusalem, and Hezekiah basically is there, and then there's 185,000 of their army that dies in the middle of the night. Hezekiah gets up, and it's they're dead. So they go back home. On that wall, we have this writing here and it says Sennacherib basically this part right here is what this says here okay Sennacherib the mighty king king of the country of Assyria sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish the Bible we didn't know okay archaeologically who Sennacherib was but the Bible told us and so the Bible and in, in archaeology and history lined up saying wow this is Nineveh we found it and not only that, but the story of Lachish, the Bible tells us about the king of uh, Assyria conquering town after town after town after town, going right up to Jerusalem. And you would think that Jerusalem would be the kingpin, the best to win. But it doesn't say anything about that until you find the Lachish tablets called the Taylor Prism here as well that were also found there at Nineveh. And on that Lachish tablet, this is what it says. Um, in, if I have it up, it says, I don't have as much here, but it says the prism records that he locked up Hezekiah like a bird in the cage. On there, it says we went here, we went here, we went here, and then we went and locked up Hezekiah like a bird in the cage. That's it. Well, why didn't talk about it destroying? Because they couldn't. Doesn't say anything about their 185,000 army dead, but we know that the Bible tells us why. And so you fill in the pieces, but it's just amazing to see these things kind of coming together here. And Zephaniah says this, He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. God's faithfulness to his promises again, even to destruction. Today that is the city, here is Nineveh, the ancient city of Nineveh. It is utterly desolate, dry, and destroyed to this very day. And it says in other verses that that would be forever. 
And even to this day, Nineveh has not been rebuilt. I'll tell you what, we serve a God who is faithful to his promises, not only for the curses, he will curse those who curse you, and he will bless those who bless you. So I've gone long, not terribly so, but I hope that this is just a foundation to set up a little bit of, uh, I guess, some laying some groundwork for what we're going to talk as we go through this history and see God's faithfulness and how it affects us. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the amazing promises that we see throughout history that we see in your word. God, put in us a faith to believe, to never doubt, to be willing to lay our lives down for you, that we have been called and that calling isn't for us to be at peace and, and comfort in this life. That calling is to be a light to the world, a light to the nations, a light to the people around us. Let us live up to that calling by the power of your Holy Spirit, by understanding your word and in, in putting that word in our hearts and in our minds, in our mouths and on our lips. Let your word go forth and let us be the warriors you've called us to be, the blessing you've called us to be. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.